After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So leaving everything behind, he got up and began to follow him. Then Levi hosted a grand banquet for Jesus at his house. Now there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were reclining at the table with them, but the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus replied to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Then they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and say prayers, and those of the Pharisees do the same, but yours eat and drink. Jesus said to them, you can't make the wedding guests fast while the groom is still with them, can you? But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable, no one who tears a patch from a new garment and puts it on an old garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, not only will he tear the new, but also the piece from the new garment will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. The new wine will spill and the skins will be ruined. No new wine is put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants new wine because, he says, the old is better. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, let me just, just a quick test here. Can, can y'all hear me? Is, any, is, is the volume good enough for you guys? Okay, because I, uh, you know, like I said, I'm having a little strain in my voice a little bit. And uh, my wife yesterday uh, said I sounded like Bill Clinton. And, uh, and I think I did because I noticed as we were in the restaurant together, there were a lot of ladies like looking in my direction in a way they don't. And normally, I, I don't really know, but I just want to make sure the volume was fine, okay, for, for you. Um, there's so much in this text that we've got to cover, but let's start out like this. Let's just ask the question, in, in what ways should I remain flexible? Where must I remain flexible? And the, the first thing is I must remain flexible in relation to Christ's unchanging word, or put a little bit differently, the word of Christ or the direction of Christ doesn't bend. I need to bend for the word of Christ to remain. I I bend to it. The word of Christ or the direction of Christ is the hard diamond and everything else before it is like talcum powder, okay? The, the, The word of the Lord stands forever. Notice the response of Levi to Jesus. Jesus says, follow me. And the, the, the scripture tells us that, you know, he, leaving everything, he got up and followed him. And if you're wanting to follow along, you've got to look at your, your, your text. You may, if you have a Bible, you may want to open it up to, to uh, Luke chapter 5. I didn't get these notes to uh, Sarah until really Friday. And so I don't have everything in there. And I was really appreciative to uh, Sarah for being as flexible and servant-minded as, as she was. But if you're going to be looking at the Scriptures, you may want to have your, your Bibles open and taking notes. You know, how people used to do it. Um, but we follow Jesus. And it's kind of interesting that this is a tax collector. And I'm not going to get into all of the specifics, but most of us we recognize already that the tax collectors were deemed in the day to be the worst of the worst. That's why they were called the tax collectors and the sinners because they were so bad 
they had a category of their own. And this is sort of convicting to me because I have to ask my question, when Jesus directs me, am I as pliable, am I as flexible as the worst of the worst? You know, if Jesus gives me a direction, he gives you a direction, don't you think you should be at least as responsible as the worst that Israel's society had to offer? Is my attitude toward Jesus that his word stands forever and that I need to bend to it? Or have I somehow in some way remade Jesus into my image thinking Jesus was Gumby-like in his flexibility toward me? The, the rubber meets the road with regards to flexibility and inflexibility in, in terms of am I going to do what Jesus wants or not? It's not a hard, It's not a hard question to discern if you're serious or not. It's just not always easy. But like we said last week, Jesus does not forget who Jesus is. We might sometimes forget he's the Lord, but Jesus never forgets who he is. And so he's perfectly comfortable with the demands that he brings to us. The, the second uh, thing, where must I remain flexible? I must remain intentionally flexible in my associations with people. Now we're going to spend more time on this one. You'll notice that when Levi follows Jesus, Jesus does not tell Levi, hey, uh, leave your old associations behind. No, he keeps the same friends and he invites all these friends, all these tax collectors and sinners over to his house and, and they have a banquet. And Jesus intentionally plops himself down in the middle of the party. He's intentionally, Jesus is intentionally Flexible in terms of his associations with people. He relates to the irreligious and the religious alike with a full-on openness to their lives. Now, I want to pause here for just a second and ask a, a question, and maybe you have a different answer than I would have. But I have to ask, Jesus, when you went to all these parties with all these tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and all the rest, did you always enjoy the party? And I have to think, probably not all the time. Uh, do you think Jesus enjoyed seeing these tax collectors and reprobates getting drunk? Because that happens at big parties where alcohol is served. Do you think he enjoyed all the conversation? Because when people have been drinking, even if it hasn't been too much, their lips kind of loosen up. And you know how lost people can talk? It's not like vulgarity got invented in the 21st century. It's not like it, it just happened a few years ago where people who were lost acted as if they were sighted. You know, you, you get on Twitter and people are so convinced of their dark understanding and misperceptions, it makes you a little bit sad, not simply because the positions they're taking are so weird and their arguments are so vacuous, but because it really does seem like they are lost. Like here's the argument and it doesn't make any sense and you're promoting violence against Supreme Court justices for, for, for what now? And you're saying all this in the open and it's a little bit disturbing but mainly it's sad because when you see a blind person not recognizing that they're blind, you're sad, especially when you care about them. You think Jesus was terribly comfortable when the people at the party maybe had a little bit too much and maybe some guy took home someone who wasn't his wife and Jesus sees this going on. 
When you love people, it makes it even worse if that's your brother or your sister or your son or your daughter and you see them lost in life and you're in the midst of the revelry. You love the people, but it's always, always mixed with a certain amount of sadness. Jesus, why do you keep going to the parties? Here's why. Because he knows there are people there like Levi. I don't know what all Levi went through, but if he betrayed his own people and was collecting taxes for the occupying force, you got to know this guy had no good friends and the friends that he had were bad friends in every sense of the word and talk about loneliness and despair. Why does Jesus go to the party? Because... From Christ's perspective, here's a lost brother that I'm trying to reclaim. It's a lot easier, I think, for us to intentionally not be intentional in terms of our relationships with the irreligious. It's a lot safer to cocoon in the safety of our homes with the safety of our safe friends. And that's not what Jesus did. And I know sometimes we do judge people on the basis of their associations, but guilt by association isn't really a biblical concept. So Jesus is extending relationships to the irreligious, but he's also very intent to be relational with the religious. And it's very difficult to go through life when you're getting crucified from both directions because you know how religious are. Jesus, why are you hanging out with these people and going to these places? And the people who are judging him ought to not be judging him because their very judgments are so loveless and narrow. The, the fact that Jesus continues these relationships, and he's talking to the Pharisees and he's answering their questions, even though they're kind of passive-aggressive and needling, you know, hey, I'm just asking a question, you know, and I'm not accusing you of anything. I'm just making a statement. I'm not... You know, saying I've arrived at the church. Yeah, right. You know how they respond to Jesus and then Jesus just answers their questions and responds back to them. It's not easy keeping a relationship going with a self-righteous, religious person who could care less about the lost. But Jesus keeps the relationship going. You know why? Because he is intentionally broad, flexible in his relationships and associations with others. It wasn't easy relating to the irreligious. It wasn't easy relating to the religious. But he did it. Why? Because his life wasn't about him. The Apostle Paul picks up on this. He sees the life of Jesus and its holy flexibility. And here's what he, he says. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 9, 19 through 22. Although I am free from all and not any one slave, I have made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win more Jews. To those under the law, like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, to win those under the law. To those who are without the law, like one without the law, though I am not without God's law, but under the law of Christ. You see, we all have to be revolving around the rigid law of Jesus, which is the law of love. To win those without the law. 
To the weak I became weak in order to win the weak I have become all things to all people so that I may by every possible means save some. Now, I don't know who all needs to hear this. I just know that we need to hear this from time to time. If, if you ever get to thinking, you know, I'm just not going to be around those your religious people. Uh, that's a spirit that is unfortunately religious and narrow and judgmental and rigid in the worst of ways. And if you say, but on the other hand, I don't really want to be around religious people either. Well, then that's also religious and narrow and judgmental and just rigid in the worst of ways. I I have changed convictions over time. If you're a Christian and you've changed your mind about a few things, good for you. That happens as you grow up and learn the Bible or just learn life. But I used to have this, this impression that I've changed or a mild conviction that, you know, there are people that are just, there are Christians that are just better with non-believers. They're comfortable. And then there are Christians that just seem to do better around insiders, not outsiders. And I used to think maybe there's just two different types of people. And I've changed in my conviction. And, and here's why. Jesus and the Apostle Paul and really examining my own heart. Loving people is just loving people. And if you have a hard time loving the irreligious, but you think you can love the religious, maybe something's a little bit off there. And if you think you're loving the religious, but not so much the irreligious, maybe there's something that's a little bit off there. Loving people is just loving people. And when you're truly loving people, here's what you do. You do what Paul does. You do what Jesus does. It's God first, other second, self last. And that includes the way in which I relate to other people. Religious insiders or outsiders, it doesn't matter. In every situation, it's not about me. It's about the Lord and it's about others, whether they be insiders or just the lost, period. And that brings us to another uh, truth that emerges from this passage. When should I be flexible? Number three, if we can put it up there, I must remain flexible toward made-up rules or made-up structures or made-up things. Let me explain what I mean. Let's go back to the conversation that Jesus has with regards to uh, fasting. His opponents say, the disciples of John fast often and say prayers, and those of the Pharisees do the same, but yours eat and drink. Like, I'm just saying, uh, this is a statement. I'm not just, yeah, okay. Jesus deals with their passive aggression, and he says, you can't make the wedding guests fast while the groom is still with them, can you? Translation. Whenever Jesus shows up, everything, including even structures and rules, may change. Now you say, no, wait a second. Is fasting a made-up thing? Well, no. In the Old Testament, there was one occasion where it was mandated to God's people. They were expected to, to fast on the Day of Atonement. But that's it. By the time Jesus comes onto the scene, the Pharisees had built up little rules around the rules and part of their you know, unwritten tradition was we fast on Mondays and Thursdays. They wouldn't, the Pharisees, they wouldn't eat from sunup to sundown on Mondays and Thursdays. They didn't have to, but that was the expectation. Because at that time, fasting was seen as essentially a, a sign of spiritual piety, true piety. It was a sign of the atonement. It was a sign of contrition. 
uh, repentance before God. It was seen as a general aid to, to prayer. And so the Pharisees at the time would, would talk about it in terms of uh, the, the, the oppression or the, the conviction. I want to get the word exactly. They would talk about the affliction of the soul or they would talk about fasting in terms of the affliction of piety. And so when they would fast on the Mondays and Thursdays, in addition to not having to have to do that in the beginning, they would add things to it like they would walk around with ash on their face and and they would wear old clothes or raggedy clothes and they would walk around in such a posture so that everybody would know how they are fasting and suffering under the affliction of their piety. It, it kind of reminds me of the, of the kind of old joke where if you're in a room with, uh, with ten people and one of them's a Christian, how can you tell if they're, how can you tell who the Christian is? They're the only one not smiling. Okay, now that's, that's really, really harsh, but it does kind of communicate people's attitude of reception like, oh, if, if only you knew how hard it was to be me. If you were good like me, you'd be suffering too. Like, that was the Pharisees. That's how they went through their affliction of the soul. They're fasting for everybody to see. Is Jesus opposed to fasting? No. In the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about when you fast. It was perfectly allowed. People can do it. He says the disciples don't have to do it because I'm with them. But in the Sermon on the Mount, he puts it like this. He says, when you fast, don't look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you're fasting. But only to your Father who is unseen and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. In other words, when Jesus comes onto the scene, the man-made stuff, the, the human being created rules, they can change. Now, this all flows from the fact that the, the law of Christ, the law of love is supreme, that God first, other second is the, the rule of, of law. That's how all the law and the prophets are fulfilled. It's not about us, it's about others. And so we are absolutely flexible in terms of our associations with other people. And sometimes in our associations with other people, in order for them to be like they need to be, some of these, you know, man-made rules may need to change so that the boundaries come down between us and other people. Okay, that all fits. But, but just understand that while Paul sees he's flexible, he never says, okay, I can bend in lots of directions and I will bend in different directions. And as I bend in different directions, I expect you to adjust your lives to me. Okay, that's not it. I'll bend in different directions and I'll do it so that I better fit with you. Why is that his attitude? Because the world doesn't revolve around Paul. Everything he does is for God and for other people the same way as Jesus. Now, I bring all that up to say when, when the Apostle Paul says, I'm going to be all things to all people, that, that is something to which we should all aspire. But here's a, here's a caution. We cannot, even if we tried, be all things to all people at the same time. In the same moment. Because often there are different types of groups or different types of people that are present in the same moment. This is why it gets complicated. Okay, I'm going to bring up an example. And it's not just a vacuous example. It's something with which we deal. Um, For example, in case you haven't recognized it, the way in which people now talk about gender is different. Okay. It used to be 
that a person's gender was associated with their biology. If you, if you had certain chromosomes and if you had certain reproductive organs, you were a boy or you were a girl. It was that simple. But now there's this thing called gender fluidity where people can choose their own gender regardless of the biology and the markers of genetic code and various reproductive organs. It gets a little strange for people. And so now, as you know, people could be biologically male and then they can say, my pronoun is her and she and vice versa. Okay, what do you do? Am, am I going to address this person by their chosen pronoun? I mean, really, this, this happens. It has happened for me, probably for some of you. If I'm relating to the person individually, I might be a little bit more flexible, not because I want to affirm their false narrative, but because I don't want to cut off a relationship where I can bring them further in the truth. But sometimes it's not just me and another person. If I'm with, let's say, my kids or my grandkids or the elementary school from the church, I'm not going to confuse children who are easily confused by affirming this confused person's confused narrative. I can't be all things to all people in that moment. See what I mean? I, it, it, when you have varying groups, sometimes it's just not as simple as we'd like for it to be, okay? And I bring this up to say very recently, I had to have a conversation, and it was positive, it wasn't negative or anything, but but the youth pastor and the children's minister and the whole staff, we were just talking through about, okay, what do we do, because this is coming up. And, And we've decided that, you know, when the youth go on a trip and there's a boy's cabin and a girl's cabin, well, the... Kids are going to be divided in accordance with their biology, not self-identification. Why? Because we have to make choices. And if we're in a Sunday school class and the little girl identifies as a boy or a boy identifies as a girl, we're not going to play the game of you get to choose your own pronouns and we're going to enter into your false narrative. It's just the kinds of decisions that we have to make. And I'm not embarrassed to say that. I think that's entirely appropriate. So sometimes you just have to be firm and just stand with the truth because you're thinking about the well-being of other people. But it does put us in those positions from time to time. There's a a Christian academy, uh, Christian Warriors Academy. They've recently asked, can we rent the church's facility? And it's not a huge Christian school. And we're actually going to be talking about that in the business meeting tomorrow at 7 o'clock, and you'll have a chance to meet them and hear hear their story, uh, but we are at least considering renting the facility to them, and one of the reasons that the school was started and one of the reasons that they're having to move has to do with all of this gender identity, and they said with regards to the kids, we can't affirm someone choosing their own pronoun that doesn't fit with their gender, and it, it creates problems and issues. And so that's why they're looking for a place. That's why they started as a school in the first place. I was, I was telling some people the other day, you know, Gene and I, we did, we did homeschool, private school, and public school for the majority of the time. And I don't know that I would have chosen to put kids in a private school or homeschool five years ago, but y'all might have noticed things are getting really, really aggressive. 
and, and weird. This is why simultaneously we've got to be careful to be rigid where we need to be rigid, but as flexible as we possibly can. And here's why we need to be as flexible as we possibly can. These young parents and these kids need to be in a gospel-oriented, Christ-following church. And we do not want to create any more barriers than we have to, but that doesn't mean that there aren't things upon which we stand firm with absolute and thoroughgoing conviction. Does that make sense? All right. Okay, yeah, you can clap. There's one. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, you know, I don't, I, I, I don't, I don't want it to sound like I, you know, that anybody doesn't love anybody. Cause we do. And I, and you know, seeing, I think Jesus being at the party and seeing the religious people so down on the Matthew types had to have broken Jesus' heart. But the fact that there were so many Matthew types there totally lost in their sin, that broke his heart too. When, when you're flexible, it's not just an intellectual exercise. Your heart will be ripped apart when you follow Jesus and the path of Paul. There's no condemnation. It's just it's uh, your, your heart is burdened and it breaks. Or at least it should. There's another thing that we need to be aware of when it comes to being flexible. And that is, I must remain flexible to the presence of Christ in my my life. That is to say, Jesus isn't going to be like, I need to be stretched by Him and it's going to happen. Let's go back to the the imagery that Jesus gives of the new wine and the old wineskins and the new cloth on the old garments. And I want you to think, as I'm reading this passage again, I want you to be asking, okay... What does the, who or what does the new wine represent? Who or what does the patch represent, the new cloth? Let me read this again. No one tears a patch from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, not only will he tear the new, but also the piece from the new garment will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. The new wine will spill. The skins will be ruined. No new wine is put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wants new wine because he says the old is better. Now, the illustration here is real simple. You, you get a new cloth, you put it on an old garment. When the new cloth starts to shrink, it tears at the seams of the, the old garment, okay? So, and it doesn't match. And so the idea is new goes with, with new, and then you got old goes with old. And then when new and old mix, there's, there's tension, there's stretching. All right, and then it, then there's the new wine that goes into the, the wineskins. In Jesus' day, there were two places where wine would be stored. One would be in clay pots or, you know, in, in, in pottery, big jars. You see that over in John chapter 2 when Jesus turns the water into wine. Nobody was surprised that they got poured out of these jars that would be stored there. But there's a second way that people would store the wine, and that is in these wineskins that would be leather that was kind of sewn together, and then you put, you know, it would just be cured in such a way that it would contain the wine. But if it was an old wineskin that had already been stretched, it would become brittle and, and hard. And so if you wanted the new wine, it had to go into new wineskins that were, you know, fresh and, and, and uh, pliable. Because when you put the new wine in there, there's going to be a fermentation that's taking place 
and that causes the wine skin to expand. And so the idea is still the same. New goes with new, old goes with old, old and new, there's tension. There, you get stressed. With the cloth, it's a pulling. With the wineskins, it's a pushing. But there's stretching that's going on in both respects. Now, here's the question. Who do you think the new wine and the new cloth is? Okay, who's the person in the parable who shows up as the doctor to change the sickness? Who's the person who shows up to, to bring change to those who are open to it, to the sinners who are being called to repentance? Who's the person who comes and changes everything so that even the expected rules around fasting change? Who is it that enters the picture and changes everything? Come on, y'all used to go to Sunday school, right? I mean, like, Jesus! All right! Woo! You know, hey, the young people in the front row, they still get it. You know, when in doubt, Jesus, if that's not the answer, faith. And if that's not the answer, grace. And if you fail three out of three, get out of here. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, no, no just go with Jesus, okay? And you know, who's the new wine? Jesus. Okay, so let's just keep it simple here. Since Jesus is the new wine and the new cloth, are there some practical implications for us? And we're going to shoot through these really quickly because I know we're almost out of time. Number The first one, Jesus will stretch you. Don't be surprised when Jesus comes into your life that you get stretched. That's what happens when you put new wine in there. It, it, it's expected to happen. When you, get, you become a Christian and things start hurting in your life and there starts a, a tearing with regards to relations and the way you used to think and the way you used to behave. And, and there, let me tell you something. You're going to be stretched until the day you die. Because Jesus is super holy and we're not so much... But he's changing us into his image. Don't expect that to be an easy, painless process. You get stretched with Jesus. Number two, I'm going to put that up there. Nobody here is the new patch or the new wine. And the reason I want to make this really clear is because sometimes people come along and say, you know, I see there the, there's a hole over here. Or this needs to change. And so I'm the new wine. I'm, a, I'm going to be the patch that, you know, covers the hole. And I'm going to save things around here. Like, look. And then people start getting a little bit condescending, you know, or, or, you know, hypercritical or, you know, high and mighty. And I just want you to know, not only are you not the new wine or the patch, you're not even the new wineskin or the new cloth. Okay? We have to be very, very careful when we're thinking through all of this stuff to, to not start in our minds having this little Messiah complex. And, and here's what I mean. When, pe- when If you ever start getting condescending and judgmental toward people in the church or outside the church, in that moment you've developed a Messiah complex. That is, you're, you're, you're acting as if you are the Messiah, but you're doing a terrible job of being like the Messiah. Here's how the Messiah acted. Our Messiah, who is the true wine, was broken, burst open, like the old wineskin that we are. He was broken so we wouldn't have to be so that we could take his presence. And he was the new cloth, but he was ripped to shreds. And he didn't have to be. He did it so that we could accept him and be transformed by him. There's no way on our own we could ever accept into our lives the presence of Christ, the holiness of God. But through his sacrifice, he made all this possible. 
What I'm trying to communicate is this. There's always only been one Messiah in this world, and, and the one Messiah is the only person who ever lived who never actually had a Messiah complex. Think about that. You start getting condescending, and in that moment, as you develop the Messiah complex, I'm telling you, you are exactly acting the opposite of the one true Messiah. There is an appropriate humility before one another when we recognize I'm not the new wine and I'm not the wine skin. I'm just the old skin. I'm just the old clothes that are torn apart. And that brings us to the next thing. Let's go ahead and put up the next point. We need to acknowledge that we are the old wine skins that have been poured into, that we are the old well-worn clothes with the holes. And here's, here's what I'm trying to communicate. Before the new wine of Jesus ever came into your life, some of us, you had the old wine of lies and deceptions and neglect and abuse poured into you. There are things in there. There's, of course, the old Adamic nature, the old flesh. Some of you, it's like you've got, you know, bullet wounds through your clothes. It's like you've got genes that have been shredded through the motorcycle wrecks of rejection. We come with baggage. And we don't always want to let go of the baggage, nor do we want to acknowledge the presence of the baggage. I think this is what Jesus is getting at. When he says no one after drinking old wine wants new wine because he says the old is better. What's he getting at? I'm used to the old wine. I'm used to the stuff that's been poured into me. And so if we're going to be transformed, we've got to recognize with, with a little bit more humility and accuracy the, our absolute need for the grace of God to be transforming us. Look, here, let me put it like this. I run into people all the time who say, I met Jesus and my life has been transformed and I don't doubt it. Jesus has come into their life. But here's what will commonly occur. Someone who will say, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, I used to be a 10 as far as a narcissist. I was such a narcissist and Jesus saved my life and now I'm healed. And they'll think, I'm a I was a 10, but now maybe I'm a one and a half or two. And it's like, you know, you ought to ask some people around you. You were a 10 and now you're maybe an eight and a half. We always overestimate the level and the speed of our healing. For someone like I'm a, I used to be a control freak and I would run over people and I was a bully and, and I just destroyed people and I was a real jerk. But then Jesus came into my life and he healed all that. And, and here we are a few weeks later and like I'm, I'm healed. I'm done. I used to be a 10. Now I'm a, a nine. No, they'll say I'm a one. And others will say, no, no, you're like a nine or a nine and a half. What's going on? There are two things that happen in a person's life to bring about change. One, Jesus enters in. That's justification. At some, in some moment, you get broken by the grace of Jesus. You get shredded by his love. But then there's a second part, and it lasts your whole life, and it's called sanctification. Jesus stretches you. Oh, you thought you were healed you had no idea how bad off you were. And neither do I have any idea how short I am of the glory of God. I look back maybe 30 years ago and I think, you know, I was doing pretty good. And here I am 30 years later and I go, I wasn't even close. And you know, I look at myself right now understanding my own blindness and I recognize I don't know where I am. I just know I'm not at all holy, holy, holy like Jesus. That ought to humble you. 
You're not the new wine. You're not the new patch. You're, you're not even the new clothes or the supple wineskin. You're an old wineskin that loves the old wine. You're the old clothes that wants Jesus to match you. You say, well, how could I possibly go through this stretching process? How could Jesus transform me? There's this thing called repentance. The new comes in, and then every day you just have to repent and repent and repent and repent and let Jesus stretch you and stretch you and stretch you. And when it's all said and done, here's why you cooperate. When Jesus is done with you like Matthew, Jesus can use you in a powerful way. Here's Levi who has no friends. He's been excommunicated by the people of God. Nobody has anything to do with him except the worst people. Jesus enters his life and through a period of justification and a time of sanctification, Matthew gets to the point where, guess what happens? God speaks to people for thousands of years through this book we call Matthew. You cooperate with God and he uses you and brings you to a place where you can glorify him appropriately. There's one more thing and we're going to end on this. And that is number four implications here. We must do our best to stay steadfast in Christ and flexible toward one another. Let me just give you an image real quick. There's the Golden Gate Bridge. Some of you have seen it. It's, you know, on both ends, it is absolutely deeply tied into the foundation with, with remarkable inflexibility. I mean, it's just, it is into the rock and it's, you know, double anchored on both sides. But what's also interesting is that everything on the bridge is related to everything else on the bridge, which is related to the inflexible rock. But everything is flexibly related so that you have this incredible combination of inflexibility and flexibility. So it's one of the strongest bridges on earth. And so if there's a, an earthquake of nine in San Francisco, do your best to get to the middle of the Golden Gate Bridge because that's where nothing's going to fall apart. That's the church. That's us. And I want to leave on a really positive note here. And I think this is positive. You know, some of you know that we were thinking about, okay, what do we do as a church? Could, could, would it be okay if instead of saying Main Street Baptist Church, at least in our website or public, you know, advertising, we went by Main Street? That's kind of the proposal that's coming forward. We'll talk about it more at this business meeting. We'll vote the following business meeting. And, you know, maybe we could, maybe we couldn't. I don't know. It's up to the church to discern what Jesus would have us to do because as always, things are more complicated than at first they appear to be, okay? But I was I was explaining this to, to Molly who cuts my hair and she's about my age and her her husband's about my age and their son just got married like our son. So we have these great talks and she was very involved in a denominational church that's not here in town but out of town and then she started going to a non-denominational church. So she's been around churches and all this stuff and, and I told her, well, the church is at least considering removing where the downtown Baptist church, we were the first Baptist church in town. And then all this other stuff happened a few years ago. And and so, but you know, we're actually considering just instead of going main street Baptist church, at least in terms of the website, just main street. One, she said, I think that's great. Main street sounds cool. But the other, the second thing that she said was that's amazing. It's amazing that you're in a denominational church with decades of history. It's amazing that y'all are even talking about this. And that nobody has shot you. <laughs> and I said that in the first service and people laughed. After the service, one of the, the older gentlemen in our church said, well, the reason we haven't shot you is because ammo's gotten a lot more expensive. <laughs> okay. So whether that changes or not, okay, that's secondary. 
Okay. The Lord's will be done and I trust you. That's how Baptist churches operate. As we pray together, discern together what it is the Lord would have us to do because we can be absolutely thoroughly rooted in Jesus and flexible toward one another with the mind toward reaching people and loving people and God first, other second, self last. And we can come to the place where God would have us to be. But it's not just arriving at a certain place or a certain name. It's about the way in which we get there. And, and as for me, I think the way in which we get there as a church is fantastic. I do. And so I am very happy for and proud of the appropriate inflexibility and flexibility of this church. And I just pray that we keep it up and build on it. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we, uh, we thank you so much for your word, for your love, for your grace. And we know we need it because there are occasions when we recognize we didn't even see how much we needed it. And I'm not just talking about years ago when we were saved. There are occasions like, I don't know, 30 minutes ago, I didn't even see how much I needed it, but now I see how much I continue to need it. We are, we are so broken that we don't even see the level of our brokenness. And still you love us. And because you were broken for us and torn apart for us, we can go through this exercise of being stretched by you and transformed by you so that we can be used by you. Give us the right disposition toward your presence in our life, toward your word in our life, toward your calling upon our lives. Give us the right disposition toward others inside the church and outside the church. And give us a, a, an appropriate humble unity before one another where we glorify you wholeheartedly without reservation in everything we do, in everything we say, in the way in which we conduct ourselves individually and corporately as your people. Remake us into the individuals you would have us to be and continue doing a good work that we would be the kind of church that represents our head well. And we pray all of this in Jesus' blessed holy name. Amen. You stand as we continue and then close in worship. I'll be here to talk with you and pray with you about whatever the Lord has laid on your heart.